I'm Father Mitch Paqua, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the sacred scriptures and understand them through sacred tradition. And in particular, we're looking at how we can use the scripture to pray. Now, we'd love to have you be part of our program by adding your questions or comments. During the live broadcast, which is on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, you can call in. And the phone number is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. But that only works in North America. Outside North America, you can still call in, but you need to call country code 1, area code 205-271-2980. That's 205-271-2980. You can also send us questions and comments by email by writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com. Or you can follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, today we're going to continue our discussion of the deadly storm that frightened the disciples as they were sailing across the Sea of Galilee. And how in the midst of the howling wind, the towering waves, they were even more afraid of an ominous-looking figure approaching them on the water saying, Fear not, I am. So we are uh, still going through my book, uh, Praying the Gospels, Jesus' Miracles in Galilee, which is still available at EWTNRC.com. It is item number 52885, 52885. We are taking a look at uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and we are in chapter 14, beginning with verses 26 and 27. And it reads there, But when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So, um, and a couple things here. First, note this. The disciples do not detect Jesus' identity yet. They are afraid of the storm afraid of the winds. Now they see someone walking on the water and they become terrified and they cry out from fear. So that's one thing. And their very first explanation is that it's a ghost. Now, people around the world tell ghost stories. Uh, even today, you still hear people telling ghost stories, and there are ghost story podcasts, things like that. Um, so that's their go-to explanation. And this will happen another time. 
you see that when on Easter Sunday, our Lord enters into the upper room. You see, in, that's in Luke 24, verse 37. It says, they were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. Seeing Jesus raised from the dead or seeing him walk on the water is so unexpected that they have to assume that it's a ghost making an appearance. This is useful to note because, first of all, the ghost explanation is not true in either situation, neither when our Lord walks on the water nor when he rises from the dead. So that's just not the case, as he'll show. And then, secondly, it's something that shows they were not people that easily expected our Lord to show up, either walking on the sea or in the resurrection. And the reason I mention that is there are certain schools among scholars who said, well, you know, the disciples remembered that Jesus had said he would rise, and so they sort of felt his presence in the midst of their community, and they sort of had this expectation of him rising, and uh, it was their experience of looking forward to him and feeling his presence that was the basis for coming up with the resurrection of the dead or walking on the sea. But that's not a very good explanation of the information they give. They don't expect our Lord to rise from the dead. This, in my mind, that is something of a dumb explanation because the last thing they expected was Jesus to walk on the water or rise from the dead. They were not people who said, yeah, yeah, we knew he could do it all along. Yeah, we, we were waiting for him. Uh, we had tried to just figure out the time Jesus was going to show up walking on the water or raised from the dead. Yeah, we knew it. Yeah. No, they don't act like that. These are not Barney Fife disciples who knew all along that this is the way that it would be. No, they don't think it is Jesus. That's why they prefer the ghost explanation. And this is something that uh, we, we see uh, uh, furthermore, oops, what happened to my notes there, um, that they uh, very much uh, do not expect this to happen. And they have to experience conversion. And again, we see in our translation that it says, it is I. And Jesus tells them, it is I. But that's not what it says in Greek. I think I mentioned this last week, but I want to repeat, repeat it. This is where our Lord is walking on the waters and he identifies himself. 
and he simply says, take heart or have courage. I am. That's what he says. Ego eimi. And it's an emphatic, I am. You can say in Greek, eimi. Um, You know, that'd be simple. But instead, it is simply, I am, with an emphasis on ego eimi. Now, this is important because we see in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, that God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. That I am is the name that the Lord gives himself. Now in Hebrew, it's ahiyah. You don't need the word I. It's just included in the verb. But here he really makes it a strong emphasis. And this is something I, if you remember, I mentioned last week, the number of passages in the Old Testament where only the Lord God walks on water in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus is not only walking on water like the Lord God does in the Old Testament, but he is identifying himself as I am. This is clearly trying to indicate his divinity. This is him showing that. It's a very important part of this. And we'll see that he will frequently use the phrase I am to identify himself in the Gospel of John. He will say simply, I am. In John 6, when he's walking on the water, same words, ego me. But also in John 8, he will call himself, I am. He'll say uh, also in John 8, uh, verse 58, before Abraham came to be, I am. He clearly recognizes himself as God. He will also call himself, I am, in John 13, uh, verse 19, as well as in chapter 18. And that's one of the most interesting ones because there, he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when the soldiers come to get him, to arrest him, he says, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And they fall backwards. He's using this divine name and it's frightening. So this is a very important passage about our Lord's divinity. Third, our Lord says, have no fear. This is a command and it is addressed to individuals many times in the Bible when they encounter the Lord God or his angels. For instance, in Genesis 15, verse 1, the Lord appears to Abram and says, fear not. Also in Genesis 46, verse 3, in Isaiah 41, verse 10. We see in the New Testament this happens as well. When the angel goes to Zechariah uh, in Luke 1.13, he says, fear not. And when he appears to Our Lady in Luke 1, verse 30, he says, fear not. Uh, when the, uh, 
you know, the same thing at the empty tomb of Jesus. The angel says it in Matthew 28, verse 5. Acts 18, Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. These are many passages where he says, fear not. And this is a command given because the presence of God is fearful. If you've ever been up on a very high cliff so, or in some very tall skyscrapers, for instance, in Chicago, the building, they I don't know what they call it now. I used to call it the Sears Tower, but uh, they, I know they changed the name because they sold it. But there is a plexiglass floor that reaches out from the top floor. There's an observation deck. And you can stand on that plexiglass. And it's just clear glass. And you look, and it's straight down. And it's not easy to avoid getting vertigo. It's scary to be at that height. That's why I mentioned cliffs and high mountains or being on top of uh, large uh, skyscrapers. It's easy to be afraid. Well, how much more would you not be afraid in the presence of infinity? This is something that's uh, very important for the Lord God to command not to be afraid um, when you're in his presence. So here's what I would ask you to contemplate in your prayer. First of all, imagine yourself being in the boat during the storm. And you see Jesus walking towards you on the water. And try to think back. You know, the apostles were really frightened. What are some of the times you have seen something that really frightened you? Um, I can certainly recall some. Uh, a man pointing a pistol at my face and pulling the trigger a couple times. Obviously, it didn't fire. <laughs> I was happy for that. Um, but, you know, that's frightening. And there are sometimes rough air crossings when you're in an airplane or other been in a boat, a fishing boat, when a sudden squall came up on the Gulf of Mexico um, and the waves started going higher than the gunnels. So this is stuff that you have to be... But think about that. And perhaps... Perhaps in your own spiritual life, you've had an experience of God that has been somewhat frightening, something that amazed you and frightened you. And then focus in your prayer on Jesus as he comes toward the boat. You can see this picture here. Imagine our Lord walking on the water to your boat. And as he approaches and says, take heart, have courage. What would be your reaction? You know, this is very odd. You know, it's very odd at that point. What, um, what comes to your mind? And how do you react when Jesus identifies himself as I am? 
and you realize this is God, or you at least begin to realize. How do his words, as you see this frightening experience, how do his words seem to you to fear not? How does that strike you? And try to speak to him in the storm. What would he say to you? And you might think about some of the storms in your own life. A lot of people have storms. Spousal relationships are not very good sometimes. You know, spouses can be very angry at each other, cut each other off, talk about divorce. Children having crises, health crises, emotional crises, all that. Think about some of those storms. And Jesus walking across the water of that storm to you, how would you react? What would you say to him? What would he say to you? This may be something that would be very worthwhile for you to picture in your mind, put yourself into the scene, and engage our Lord in the midst of this kind of uh, fear and talk. And what I would recommend is that you, again, conclude with that prayer, the soul of Christ, Anima Christi. Soul of Christ, save me. Body of Christ, uh, excuse me, uh, soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of, of Christ, strengthen me. Just go through that prayer and talk to our Lord. Okay? All right, we'll take a break, come back, and deal with the next part where Peter walks on the water also. Please stay with us. Welcome back. We are now ready to take a look at Peter's response. In Matthew 14, verses 28 to 33, it says, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened. And, be, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, 
let's take a look at that. First, we see that St. Peter exercises some of his leadership. Now, this is before our Lord had called him the rock. That would happen in two more chapters. In Matthew chapter 16, we're only in Matthew 14. But he is exercising his leadership qualities. And he speaks to the presumed ghost. Again, they don't know for sure. If you look at his statement, he says, Lord, if it is you, bid me come to you on the water. So he's trying to test to see if it is the Lord. And he wants to discern the authenticity of Jesus being there. Um, and he does it on the basis of taking a personal risk. He takes a risk of being willing to step out on the water. Now, he doesn't say, John, get out of the boat and see if you can walk on the water to Jesus. We'll see if it's Jesus, if John can do it. You're young, go ahead. No, he doesn't. He's not that kind of leader. He uh, is going to do it himself. And he shows his leadership by following Jesus' command. Um, you know, he, to actually get out of the boat and walk on the water. Now, keep this in mind. There is a lot of impetuosity in St. Peter. He does a lot of things just going off the handle. But he's no naive fool. He grew up next to this lake. He made his living fishing on it. He knows how things work. And he knows that walking on water is not normal. This is not what people do. Uh, I'm sure that he would never say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this rabbi who did it. Or this other fisherman, he was cool. He could walk on water. No, he had never seen that before. Never seen that before. So he's not some sort of naive fool. And he was already dutifully afraid during the storm. He had certainly been in storms before this. The squalls on the sea can come up fairly quickly if you're not careful. And you have to, you know, be alert. And you have to know how to handle a boat in stormy water. And he, um, you know, gets out of the boat and starts to walk. This would have amazed him as much as it amazes us. So that's a very important point. Now, it's important to note that up until this point, Peter is showing leadership, he's showing faith, he's doing a fairly proper discernment. If this is you and not a ghost, bid me come to you on the water. And he comes. He must have actually had pretty good level of faith. But he runs into a problem. And 
preachers throughout the centuries have pointed this out, that as soon as Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and started looking down at the water, he began to sink. When he stops looking at Christ, but looks at the storm, when he takes his eyes off of the Lord and looks at the danger, that is when he begins to sink. And this obviously is a very, very important point for all of us. I'm sure that's one of the reasons that St. Matthew and uh, wants to include this episode in the gospel so that we avoid the same mistake. And so Peter cries out for salvation. Save me, Lord. He cries out for that. And at that point, Jesus reaches out his hand and reaches it to Peter and lifts him up and then brings him back into the boat. Now, our Lord is not about to start a special effects team that makes a living off of getting people to walk on the water. He wants Peter back in the boat. That's the normal way to get across the lake. And he wants that. He's not going to say, come on, Peter, we'll start walking. We'll walk the rest of the way. The other guys can row the boat. And once we show people, then we'll charge them money to walk on the water too. No, he doesn't do that. Some people might be tempted, but our Lord was not. He has them get into the boat right away and do that which is normal and get and, and cross the boat, but across the sea in the boat. But what is also significant is as soon as they both enter into the boat, the sea calms down. It becomes calm. And, you know, normally the Sea of Galilee can be, you know, pretty flat. It doesn't have too many big waves on it. It's not that big a body of water. And here they can just start sailing across. And they would use oars as well as sails in the, the fishing boats of that time. And this is something that also indicates our Lord's divinity, that he is able to calm the water. And he doesn't do anything. He just gets into the boat and it's calm. But his presence is enough to bring that calm. And when you think of how in the Old Testament, the Lord God is the one who controls the wind and the sea and then exercises that control right here as they're in the boat. You can understand why the disciples worshipped him. You can see that they... Um, you know, said to themselves that Jesus is truly the Son of God. They recognize this is not normal human power. This has to come from God. And they worship Jesus. Now that's a 
very important thing. And think again of how many times Christians have crises of faith, not unlike Peter walking on the water. And this is, you know, dealing with, again, very serious dangers and crises in life. Sicknesses and financial problems, the risk of losing everything. And some people, when they lose everything, despair and commit suicide. This happened to a lot of business people in various financial crashes. They get so overwhelmed that they kill themselves, jump out of windows and things like that. Happened in the financial crash of 29, 1929 that is, also in 2008 and other times. And that's foolish, foolish. In the midst of those crises, we don't take our own life because A, it's not our life. It is God's life. And this is uh, something that we have to pay attention to. Um, and we can oftentimes be very tempted to start yelling and saying, why is this happening to me? Now, think about the implication there. Do you think that it should happen to somebody else? Well, yeah, yeah, make it happen to Putin or somebody. I don't like him. Nobody likes Putin. Uh, no. You know, and the question is often rhetorical. Why is this happening to me? As if it shouldn't. Well, you don't have somebody better that to have it happen to. Um, no, no, no. We... We have to take a look at this. We can ask why it's happening, but I wouldn't try to answer it at the moment. And then people will say, well, where's God in all this? Why should this happen? And you know, we can think about horrible, I mean, truly horrible things. You know, the killing last night of students at Michigan State University by some guy who has nothing to do with them. Somebody came off, apparently they're saying right now that uh, he had nothing to do with the university, wasn't a student, wasn't on staff, wasn't faculty, nothing. So why, where's God in all this? And why doesn't God do something to stop this? You know, especially when I need it. Some people will try to get sympathy because they want victim status. There's a lot of that. A lot of politicians like to use victim status. Um, they even want other people to start feeling guilty and uh, about, you know, how, you know, you don't have it as bad as I do. Um, and if they can't gain authentic love from you, they try to get guilt to make you feel sorry for them. And this is a risk. As a matter of fact, I'd say it's outright foolish to try to claim victim status because our Lord would say to you, 
as you try to claim to be a victim. I'm, I suffer more than any of you. You don't know what it's like because of this, that, and the other thing. You'll have our Lord say to you, oh, you of little faith. Do you really want Jesus, our Lord, to say to you, oh, you of little faith? I don't think so. So, what, and you ask too, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Don't jump for this victim status that's so popular right now. That's, that's just dumb. Um, instead, think back on the ways that you acted like Peter walking on the water. Imagine Jesus standing in front of you. And as long as you focus on Jesus, you can walk over the problems. But when you start to focus on the problems and you sink. Picture our Lord saying to you, why did you doubt? Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? St. Therese of Lisieux had refrained from complaining about her own suffering. She had a terrible, terrible case of tuberculosis. And she suffered tremendously. And the pain was awful. And people say, you don't complain. Why don't you ask our Lord? He said, oh, it seems like my Lord is sleeping, but I don't want to wake him because I don't want him to say to me, oh, you of little faith. She didn't want to hear that. So she didn't complain. And she trusted that he was still present in the storm of her disease, a disease that took her young life. She was only in her mid-20s. And she died from it, but she didn't want to complain. Ask our Lord what he would say to you about the way you deal with the crises of your faith. And just to point out that eventually the disciples did come to realize that he's the Son of God. They worship him. They recognize that he's not a ghost. And they come to recognize that he is, I am. And they say, truly is the Son of God. It doesn't come easily to them. And it may not come easily to many of us. But with God's grace, you can come to that faith and truly trust him. All right. We have some questions. One of them is from one of our viewers watching us live on YouTube. He says... Hello, Father. It seems the disciples had a very difficult time believing Jesus was the Messiah. Yep. And he repeatedly scolds them for having little faith. Why did Jesus pick them precisely? <laughs> you know, thank you for asking that. In fact, Mother Angelica used to ask the same question. Those of us who've been around here a lot, a long time, Remember how she said, can you believe those dodos? She would always call them dodos because they had so little faith. Uh, and they'd seen lots of miracles. But here's something else. I think it's important to recognize in this that they're kind of like a lot of people. They're like, you know, how different are they from the rest of us? Had he picked 
the greatest heroes who never doubted and were just totally strong, you know, most of us would have trouble relating to them. He wants to bring them from being kind of average people, pretty good, but kind of average. He wants to take them from that average and have them come to a conversion, just like he wants to do with us. And so we can understand that as well, okay? So that's, that's my suspicion. It helps me, encourages me to see that the apostles were like I am. We also have another question that is from Futhela, who's also watching on YouTube. He says, hello, Father. What is the significance of Jesus being seen walking on water by his disciples within the context of the temptations he encountered in the desert for 40 days? Is it to assert his authority, Futhela? Well, Futhela, I don't think it's to assert his authority. I don't think so. I think, you know, remember the context. He had been praying, and he sees the apostles rowing hard against the wind. And they're having, and they're not getting anywhere in the midst of the storm. So, one of the things that happens is he walks toward them to help them get out of that situation. You see that our Lord's miracles are not publicity stunts. If he were from Hollywood, yeah, he might do that. If he were from Washington, he might do that. But he does his miracles not as a publicity stunt, and in fact, when he does a miracle, he tells people, don't say anything. Instead, he is simply trying to help someone who is in need. That's the reason for his miracles. So that's what I think is going on here too. It's him trying to help the apostles who are in the sea, rowing against the wind, getting nowhere. And so he reaches out, walks to, across the water, and helps them, and helps bring them to the other side in the calm after the storm. All right, we're going to take a little break, and we'll have some more questions from you for, uh, by email, YouTube maybe, and here in the studio audience. So please stay with us. Welcome back. And before we get to our next comments or questions, 
want to ask you to join me for EWTN Live tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And we will be speaking with author and good friend of mine, Joseph Pierce. He wants to talk about 12 of the most important books ever written and how each work has left its mark on the civilized world. This is very important, especially as we see in many of our schools, students are not being asked to read the great literature, the really fine literature. This would be a good way so that if you're at in some of the school districts, the teachers don't give them the great literature. You can do it at home with them. So we'll take a look at that uh, tomorrow night. We have a question from our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? Conyers, Georgia. Good to have you. Good Thank to have you. That's not that it's far very, away. Very good to be here. Yeah. What can we do for you this fine day? Well, thank you for what you said already. Uh, I've got a brother that's very sick now, and I'm sh uh, what you said I'm sure will encourage him, but, uh, and all of us, we go through those storms of our lives. But I'd like you to address, in my life, it, it, the, 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 the uh, passages you I think we tend to think of those as, you know, just storm things. Mm -hmm. But he's, Jesus said, I am. So he's there. I, the mm -hmm. I am is there all the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, I'm not so sure that we don't shortchange him mm -hmm. the rest mm -hmm. of the time, yeah. you know. And that if we did think of those kind of situations and apply them to every time, that the good, the bad, Tremendous peace, tremendous help. Uh, yeah, this, this is something that I think is, uh, you're, you're onto something very important. We need to recognize that our Lord is present in all the circumstances of our lives. Uh, that's part of the message of Romans chapter 8, that, uh, you know, that all things work out to the good for those who love God. Now, do they work out the way I thought the good should work out? Eh, not so much. Not so much. But does it work out? Yes. And this is something that um, I think we should be alert to. And something else, I, I alluded to it early on. And, you know, I say this after having spun around the sun on this planet Earth for the last 73 years. Um, I don't, at this stage of my life, I don't think it is prudent to insist, God, why are you doing this to me? I don't think that's the right question during the moment of a crisis. Instead, ask first, Lord, what do you want me to do in the midst of this situation? And then worry about why it's happening later on. That's a later question. The immediate question is, what do you want me to do now? How do you want me to react? What can I do? And then worry about why did this happen? What does it mean? 
That's a secondary question. And I, I urge those of you who are going through difficulties to keep that in mind. We have another question coming in from Doug in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Doug, what can we do for you today? Hello, Father Mitch. Hey, Father Mitch, in Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 3, it mentions Melchizedek. You're yes. a priest forever, king of Salem. It states, he had no mother, no father, no ancestry. Even mm -hmm. Jesus had an ancestry. Right. How can it be? Okay, there's, uh, in the book of Genesis, remember, to, to read uh, the basis for that passage in Hebrews, go back to Genesis uh, 14, all right? Yeah, that, that's where you see the passage about Melchizedek, and that's the, the core episode. And you see that in the context, Abram is rescuing his nephew Lot, who had been living over in Sodom, and he's rescuing from an attack by some uh, kings from what is today Syria, modern Syria. And after the battle is over, Abram comes from the battle through Salem, which is Jerusalem, of course. And he accepts Melchizedek's priesthood because he's the priest of God Most High, El Elyon, and this uh, offering a sacrifice is something that Abram does at that point. Now, there is no mention of his background. It's completely, he's, remember, he's also a Jebusite. That is, he belongs to the Canaanite people that lived in Jerusalem. That's who ran Jerusalem at that time, the Jebusites. And None of his background is mentioned. Now, when you read the book of Genesis, you simply have a sense that they weren't interested. They just didn't give any list of ancestry because it wasn't their concern. But in Hebrews, they say, no, there's something else here. And the reason that they see something else is because of Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, it says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In this way, they, of course, Hebrews applies that verse to Jesus Christ. He cannot have the Jewish priesthood of the Kohanes. The Kohanim were the priests of Israel, and they were descended from Aaron and his sons. So they can't, Jesus can't have that because he belongs to the tribe of Judah. But he is able to have a fulfillment of Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the Messiah and that the Messiah will have this priesthood. And since Melchizedek has no ancestry, you don't trace him back to Aaron or Moses because they hadn't been born yet. 
and that he has a priesthood that's even superior to that of Abram. Therefore, this is seen as a different order of priest, and as such, Jesus fulfills that. Not having the ancestry included in Genesis 14 means that you don't try to put it into one of those categories. Does that help, Doug? I think he's gone. Okay, but that's, that's what's going on. That's very important. Your, your question is very important. Um, and it's to show that Jesus' priesthood is of a totally different kind and in fact is superior. That's the point in Hebrews. It's superior to the priesthood of Aaron and the Kohanim that came from him. We have another caller. Sally is calling from Michigan. Sally, what can we do to you? Hi, I wish I had a direct line to you all the time, but um, I wanted to ask you, um, when I watch EWTN, I, I watch and I do the, the rosary, the sorrowful, and then the stations of the cross. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. so hard for me um, when I watch those two, they're so sorrowful, and I imagine how much worse it really it was. And I sometimes find myself getting angry thinking, why couldn't God have just made us all from the beginning, Adam and Eve, no apple, and we would have all been, he knew what was going to happen. We could have avoided all these things that we're praying to stop, and I don't sometimes understand why, you know. Okay. And I, 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 Sally, let me ask you this. Do you have any pets? Yes. And do you like what kind of pets do you have? I have a little doggie. He's adorable. Oh, see. And that's very nice. Now, would, do you have any children? Yes, I have a son. Okay. Now, there's a big difference between your pet and your son, isn't there? Correct. Your pet dog probably wouldn't hurt, can't hurt your feelings as much as your son potentially could, right? Right. And, you know, sometimes sons, uh, as my mother might have pointed out, uh, sometimes sons disappoint their mothers. But a dog is just a dog. And you love the dog, but then at the same time that a son can disobey you and be obnoxious, he can also love you in a way that the dog cannot. Is that not true? Yes, that's correct, yeah. And this is what, if God didn't give us a chance to sin, then we would be like pets. We'd be like the animals. We couldn't do anything wrong. We might be kind of cute. But... By the fact that he gives us a chance that we could go wrong, but also we can go right, just like your son. He can go wrong and may at times have, but he also can be very good. And that is totally different than your dog. I assume you love your son more than you love your dog, even when he drives you nuts. Am I correct? Absolutely. Of course, of course. And God loves the animals, but he loves us more. But there's also a bigger risk that because we have free will. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It does. 
And here's the reality that sin and evil is at war with God. It's at war with him. And he sent his son to die for the forgiveness of sin because he wanted to defeat it. Again, not unlike the way that parents will let their sons go to war to, say, to protect the country. Now, you don't want to see them get hurt. You don't want to see them die. But tragically, we couldn't take the beaches at Normandy without a lot of men dying. We couldn't do it. And God couldn't defeat Satan without his son engaging in the war, taking the hit, but then coming back to life again. And that's why he let him die on the cross, to win that war against evil. Okay? But I cannot win the war against time. We are out of it. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we can bring you this show and all the other shows that we do here on the network only because the network is brought to you by you. That's how our Lord inspired Mother Angelica to start it. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. And then we'll be able to pay all of our many bills too. God bless you all for your generosity and thank you.